Good morning, everyone. Uh, I like to start all of my Bible studies at my church, and our people basically are at the point now where they demand this of me with a really funny joke. So I thought I'd start and do, do one for you guys this morning. You ready? Try to contain yourselves. These are, these are belly busters. Two fish are in a tank. One looks at the other and says, how do you drive this thing? My church loves it, right, guys? Yeah. Uh, before I tell you guys more about my church, I just want to tell you uh, how encouraged I am as I've heard about your church. I've been following along with Blake at a distance uh, as you guys have gone through the transition that you've, you've gone through. And uh, I've gotten emails and updates, and we've been praying for you guys. And to actually be here with you and to see the way the Lord has so powerfully moved uh, in your body, it just blows me away. You know, it just it blows me away. I know that so many churches, when they look for evidences of God's grace, they look at all the wrong things. You know, we had this many baptisms, and we have this much money in the bank, and we have these many members, and we're doing, we gave away 5,000 bags of groceries last year. And none of that is necessarily bad or uh, non-evidence of God's grace. But when I hear about people repenting of sin, when I hear about people counting the cost to follow the truth of Scripture, when I hear about people following Jesus no matter what, his sheep hear his voice, and it's very clear that you all are doing that, that's the sort of stuff that really gets me going, right? That's the stuff that money can't buy. It's something that the Spirit of God has to do. And from what I gather, the Spirit of God is certainly at work in, in the life of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. I say it right? Yeah. So I'm just super encouraged by you guys, and I wanted to share that. Uh, in Decatur, Alabama, I serve as the senior pastor of Sixth Avenue Community Church, uh, we started as a church revitalization. Uh, it used to be a church of God. Uh, I started off with this church when I got to know the guy who was sort of serving as an interim pastor there. I kind of discipled him be behind the scenes, uh, how to think about maybe fixing the church, getting it in a more biblical place, making it healthier. And uh, because God has a sense of humor, I ended up back there uh, seven months later to be the pastor the church was as about as unhealthy as a, as a church can be uh, and still not be just outright heretical. And uh, the Lord was very kind over the last four years. He's, he's blessed uh, my family's time there, and he's really turned the church around. We've left the church of God. We are now an independent Baptistic church, and uh, we're growing slowly but surely. And all the good things that I've heard about what's happening in your church, those same things are happening at our church because the same spirit is at work in that place, right? And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real honor to be here with you guys uh, and to, to just walk in this grace with you. So with that being said, this morning we're going to talk about the prosperity gospel, as you've gathered from the clips that we've watched and the books that Blake presented. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray and then we'll dive right in, okay? Father God, we love you. We're so thankful that you've called us to yourself, that you've saved us by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that you have indwelt us with your Holy Spirit, that you've sealed us for the day of redemption, and that we will one day be at home with you forever in peace and joy and glory. Father God, we know that as you've called us to yourself, you've called us to suffering, you've called us to imitate our master. And Father God, that's not easy, being broke, being broken, being low. But Father God, we know that it's only by sharing in this lowliness that we can share in the glory that you have for us. So we pray that even this morning you would use this talk, as meager as it is, 
to strengthen us to endure the hardship that you've called us to. Strengthen our backs, Lord. Make us robust to carry the crosses that you have given us as we follow you all the way home to heaven. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Now, uh, the talk that I'm giving you all this morning is kind of like a summary talk of, of uh, a book that I, I'm going to be having coming out with Mike McKinley. It's going to be published through Christian Focus. I think it's going to be, actually, I should know the title of my book, right? It's going to be Health, Wealth. It'll be good, trust me. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to workshop the title eventually, but the book is, the manuscript's been submitted. We're working through edits. That's going to be coming out through Nine Marks and Christian Focus next year. And then additionally, there's going to be a smaller book that's coming out through Crossway, part of the questions and answers series that they do. And that's also going to be on the uh, Prosperity Gospel. That book in particular, I think, will be the most helpful for you. If you have friends or family members who are in this stuff or a coworker, or maybe someone that you want to talk to about it, but they won't talk to you and maybe you would want to give them a book, but they're not going to read a book. You know, some of the books that Blake held up, they're fantastic, but people aren't going to read all that. Uh, this is like... Uh, 5,000 words. It's basically the length of a sermon, and you can just say, hey, take this, read it, and let's talk about it. That should be coming out next year as well, so be on the lookout for that. Blake, I guess whenever it comes out, maybe you can share it with the church. I'll send you guys like a million free copies. Uh, But this is kind of a a summary of that. I'm going to try to give you everything that I can in an hour. Uh, There's a lot to cover. Before we get started, let me tell you that uh, this morning, you're going to, you probably even noticed in that video that... uh, the word of faith and prosperity gospel titles are used interchangeably. Uh, they're essentially not the same doctrine, but they function as the same doctrine. You'll almost never find the prosperity gospel without word of faith theology. And I've never seen a church that practices word of faith theology where they don't believe in the prosperity gospel. So if you wanted to be academic and kind of lay them out, you would, it would be like a Venn diagram, right? Like there would be some kind of separation, but there would be massive overlap. So I'm just going to use those terms interchangeably today, okay? So let's get into talking about the prosperity gospel. Well, like most things, uh, you hit a wall almost as soon as you get into it because uh, it's, it's kind of hard to define the prosperity gospel, right? Uh, we've just finished a very difficult political season yet again, round two. You know, 2016 came back with a vengeance in 2020. And I don't know if you've been involved in very many uh, political conversations, hopefully not. But if you have been, or if you've been paying attention to them, one of the things that you'll notice is that we have a problem with definitions, right? So I say the word liberal, and what you might hear is leftist or progressive. But I might be using that phrase in a completely different sense. I might be referring to classical liberalism, right, which has a focus on the individual and his rights and, you know, John Locke and all that stuff. Okay, if I use the word uh, justice, right, uh, you might hear that word and think one thing, and I might say that word and mean another thing. If I say love, right, which you might hear is one thing, what I might be intending to say could be another thing. There's a problem here of definitions, a problem of shared terminology. Uh, Blake's uh, parents-in-law, wait, wh- where are you at? Father-in-law, you're from England, right? And uh, what do you call the space in the back of the car where you keep stuff? See, no, that's, that's not what you call it. You call it a trunk, right? Uh, and we did it better, right? 
I don't want to bring up crumpets versus biscuits, but we definitely win. <laughs> There's not a chicken crumpet at Chick-fil-A, right? Uh, okay, and what do you guys call the thing that you, when you go into a building, you need to get to the top floor? What do you call that when you get in there? A lift, a lift. Again, wrong. It's an elevator. It's an ele- it literally elevates you. It's right there in the name, right? Uh, yeah, you're going to find these, the, the same issue when you go to talk about the prosperity gospel. You're going to have conversations with people, and they're going to say certain words, and you're going to say certain words, and you're just going to be talking past each other. So it's really important at the outset of this discussion, uh, if you want to be thoughtful about these things, to like try to nail down a definition of the prosperity gospel, right? We want to make sure that we have shared terminology. And that is super difficult. It's like trying to nail a blob to the wall. It's just, uh, it, it's just, it's really hard, partly because the prosperity gospel is not really one thing. The prosperity gospel is kind of like a conglomeration of heresies. It's a mixture of a whole bunch of really bad ideas, people who didn't know how to read their Bible, and they came together and had a baby, and that was the prosperity gospel. Um, I, I used to call it the Voltron of heresies, but the more I use that, the less people understand it. See, she gets it. She understands. You remember all the robots? They would, like, fight the villains, and then they would come together and form, like, a super robot? Yes? All right, I got one. Okay, here's, the, here's, an, here's another way to think about it, okay? Uh, he, here's how you should think about the prosperity gospel. Uh, water comes in three forms. Oh, and by the way, I'm expecting people's hands to be raised. This is going to be very interactive. I'm going to just treat you guys like I treat my church, okay? And when I do stuff like this in my church, it's more like a, an active conversation, all right? So, and I'm, but I'm also a hand raiser, so you've got to raise your hand, all right? Um, what are the three forms of water? Who remembers sixth grade physical science? Yes, ma'am, go. I mean, that's it. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Okay. Good try. Steam, so that's gas, and then ice, that's solid, and then water, which is liquid, right? Now, regardless of the form that the water may come in, if it's a gaseous, solid, or liquid, it still is composed of the same basic elements, right? Two hydrogen, one oxygen. Doesn't matter the form, the same elements are there. That's how I think you should think about the prosperity gospel. It's really tricky to, to put like the definition of it into one sentence. But I think you can look at any number of teachers in their teaching, or you could look at any number of churches, and regardless of whether or not it's expressed this way or that way or the third way, it's going to have the same core elements. So there could be a prosperity gospel church down the road in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the nicest part of town where every house is like a mansion. Uh, and uh, that prosperity gospel could look and sound one way. And then you could go to uh, Lusaka in, in Africa and find a prosperity gospel church that, you know, the member, they're in a hut, okay, and everyone there is barefoot, and the prosperity gospel will look a little different there, okay, so uh, all that to say, let's, let's talk about the main elements of the prosperity gospel. So, first, they tend to focus on the same four themes, okay, so you're like, okay, what element am I going to identify? If you were to turn on Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Stephen Furtick, Joyce Meyer, if you were to go to this church, Redding, California, what, what's the name of that church in Redding? Bill, yeah, if you were to go to Bethel, Hillsong, one of the things that you'll notice is that they're kind of always talking about the same four things. They may not always use the same terminology, but they're always coming back to these same four things. 
And they are faith, wealth, health, and victory. Faith, wealth, health, and victory. Uh, we all know the guy who kind of has his hobby horse, you know, and no matter what it is, you're having a conversation with the guy, he can bring the conversation back around to this thing. Like, how did, we started off talking about baseball, and now we're once again talking about, like, Ron Paul and how he can definitely win the next election. Like, I don't know how we got here, but we're here, okay? Uh, or you've maybe been in a church before where the pastor has his hobby horse, and he's supposed to be preaching out of Ephesians, and somehow he's back to preaching about whatever his favorite thing is at the moment. That's kind of what you'll see in these churches. No matter what verse you go to, no matter what book of the Bible you're in, regardless of whatever the theme is supposed to be, somehow, some way, the sermon always comes back around to faith, wealth, health, and victory. And again, what they mean by these things is, is kind of different than what we mean, and so we'll come back around and talk about that later, okay? Um, uh, also, I, I guess I should say, before continuing, when you're trying to understand uh, health and wealth prosperity gospel churches, a, a lot of us have difficulty saying, it, being able to assess, like, is this church actually a health, wealth, and, 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 and uh, prosperity gospel church? Because you would look at, like, Creflo Dollar, okay? The dude has people come up at the beginning of the service and throw money on the ground, and then him and his guys run around and dance on the money, supposedly anointing it with their blessing, and you're like, oh, that's a prosperity gospel church, right? Like, that's, it's pretty on the nose. It's pretty easy. But there are other churches and other teachers where you're like, I don't know. I'm not so sure. You know, I listened to this sermon, and it seemed like 95% of it maybe wasn't the best preaching I've ever heard, and it maybe wasn't the most robust doctrinal treatment I've ever seen, but I, I don't know, like he said some stuff, but maybe they're just, maybe it's too strong of an emphasis. So it's kind of hard to tell. Uh, I encourage people to think about it uh, as kind of like a spectrum, okay? So over here on the far right side of the spectrum, you have like Kenneth Copeland, you know, you are little gods, people very obviously saying like things like, you know, Jesus died to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's over here. And then kind of like a little bit down from that, you'll have like the, the Joyce Myers. She's pretty solidly in that cap, camp, but, but it, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell. She says some good stuff some of the time. Like you even read like her, her study Bible and some of her notes, in the, they're like not bad. And then you can kind of come, come down to the middle and there's like Stephen Furtick and, and those guys at like Elevation. And then you go a little bit further down and you'll have... Uh, churches that would say that they're not prosperity gospel, they would reject that in theory. But like all of their ministry is like Jesus wants you to have the best life, right? They're, they're not quite quoting Joel Osteen, but they might as well be. And uh, they might as well be living out the prosperity gospel, even if they're not talking about it in the same way as these guys who are on the other side of the spectrum. Okay, got that out of the way. Now, uh, other core elements of the prosperity gospel. Uh, number two. Exalting the gift above the giver. Exalting the gift above the giver. Uh, this is part of the pattern of sin that has inculcated itself uh, in the life of creation after sin entered into the world. You see it all the time. This is just one particular manifestation of it. But in the prosperity gospel, you will always find people who value those things which God gives us more than we value God himself, right? Uh, can, can you guys think of any scriptures that we could look to that would help us 
to see why that's so dangerous or scriptures that would very clearly show us that like that's not how we should think about things. We should value God above everything else. Take your time. I'm in no rush. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Absolutely. What else? Have no other gods before me, including things that I have created that you have turned into a god. Yeah. What about even that love the Lord your God, right? Next after that is, and love your neighbor as yourself. But which one comes first? That's right. Even other people who are created in God's image, who are very special because of that, should not have a place of primacy in our hearts above God himself. Anybody else? There's like a, a thousand, but I just, and I got one right here that we're going to turn to that will pretty solidly handle it. I just want to give you guys an opportunity. Can you think of anything else? Imagine that you're having a conversation with someone right now who's in the prosperity gospel, and they're like, this is what they're, they're giving you. They're espousing gifts above giver theology. What scripture might you turn to to help them see the error of their ways? Sir? Yeah, and can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, turn with me to Psalm 73, verse 25. Let's just, let's, let's walk through uh, this psalm together first. So, this is a psalm of Asaph, starting in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So right at the beginning of the psalm, you can see the setup, right? Uh, Yeah, God's good. He's taking care of his people. He's acknowledging that at the outset of this psalm. But then he says, for some reason, God's goodness seems to be devoid in my life. It seems like it ricocheted off of me and went to other people. And then in verse 3, he says, I'm envious of the arrogant, or I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw that they were prosperous in their evil, in their wickedness. There's something here that's not making sense to the psalmist, right? Like I'm seeing these bad men, these evil women, doing bad, rebelling against the God who made them and who loves them, and, and they seem to be doing good. It seems like God is blessing them. Why? Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death, and that, you know, hunger pangs. Uh, their bodies are fat and sleek. So, you know, if you lived, lived in the ancient world, being fat was not something you had to work against. They weren't like, oh, man, I guess I should join the gym. It was like, things are going well, you know. Uh, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So not only are they doing well, but they're boastful about it, acting like these things were accomplished by them in their own power, okay? And, uh, and on top of that, they're kind of taking it and running away with it. They're doing violence in their arrogance. Verse 7, their eyes <laughs> swell out through fatness. They're so fat that their eyes are popping out of their head. This is awesome. Their hearts overflow with follies, and we might say cholesterol. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Right? So they're like, I don't need you, God. I don't need anyone else. I'm the man. Verse 10. Therefore his people 
turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So God's people are looking around at this injustice and they're going, this doesn't add up. The calculus isn't right here. Is God really there? If he is, why is this happening? Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Basically, he says, like, what am I doing this for, God? I'm, like, striving. I'm grinding. I'm, like, trying to follow you and be faithful in an impossibly difficult situation, life in a fallen world. It has not been easy, and yet here I am. What am I doing this for? I'm suffering. They're prospering. They don't love you. They hate you. You do them good, and you do me harm. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. So he's wrestling through it, trying to wrap his mind around it. It's wearing him out. But he didn't run away from God. He ran to God. And then when he ran to God, God helped him to see. God helped him to understand what's happening. Verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So, like, justice will come. It comes. Either in this life or in the next, justice is going to come. God is going to put these evildoers to justice. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So he says, like, I was just controlled by these, like, animal passions. I was just trying to do, like, spiritual math in my head. And when it, the numbers didn't add up, I, I, I reacted violently against you, God. And then he says, verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continuously with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. At the end of the day, the answer that he has from God about his situation is, even if I don't have anything else other than you, God, I have everything. These men have everything that the world has to offer. Their flesh is completely satisfied, but they don't have God, and so really, they have nothing at all. Friends, the prosperity gospel is an inversion of this teaching. The prosperity gospel says, if you have God and nothing else, you still really don't have much. If you have God and God hasn't blessed you materially, then maybe God isn't really with you at all. Maybe he hasn't blessed you in the slightest. The prosperity gospel trains you to think the opposite of Psalm 73. It teaches you to value all the good things God can give you. And then, you know, if there's any affection left over for God afterwards, well, that would be fine. But the God of the gospel, the true God of the Bible, the God who made us, who loves us, who's called us to himself, the God who has saved us, uh, he says, I am the gift. And every other good gift is pointing back to me. And they should be understood and enjoyed in that light. Think about every good gift that you have in your life, all the good things that you have that you can enjoy, Right? When do you enjoy them most as a Christian? 
Well, when you have them in proper proportion. Food, sex, uh, recreation, whatever they may be. As soon as those things start to be the, pr- the, the primary focal point of your life and you're seeking enjoyment in those things, your spiritual life begins to degrade. You, you start to kind of go sideways. But insofar as you can enjoy your spouse, your family, your whatever, your boat, <laughs> your hobbies, as soon as you can enjoy those things in right relation to God, well, it seems like it all starts to start making sense again, right? We could talk more about that, but we don't have time. So uh, number one, the four themes, the hobby horses of the prosperity gospel. The second core element is exalting the gift above the giver. The third is an over-realized eschatology. Now listen, I'm like Blake. I don't have a seminary degree. So I have to use big phrases like this so I feel like I'm a real pastor, like I actually know something. I don't even have a high school diploma, though, though. So you got, you got one up on me, man. Uh, who, who, who here, mm, I see a lot of people with glasses. Y'all look smart. <laughs> who wants to tell me what over-realized eschatology means? Wait, what's your intern's name? Jansen. Jansen. Way in the back. Tell us what it means. Yeah, and what's eschatology? I know, I know we all know, but in case somebody doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if, if uh, I know you've been sitting under Blake's teaching, you understand the concept of biblical theology, right? There's systematic theology where you kind of uh, cull all the data about a particular subject in the Bible, and then you assemble it, you systematize it, so you have like, you know, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of whatever. That's systematic theology. Another equally important way of reading your Bible is biblical theology. You read the Bible as a story, starting in Genesis 1 and ending in Revelation 21. Yes, I know there's a Revelation 22, but it just doesn't flow as well. So you read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 as the grand uh, historical narrative of of the world of salvation salvation of everything. And uh, when we talk about eschatology, we're talking about the end of that story, right? We're talking about what's still yet to come. And as you know, the, the, the story of the Bible goes like this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, We've already gone through chapters 1 through 3. We've been through creation. We've been through the fall. We've been, we've, we're on the other side of redemption. Jesus has died to pay the price for our sins. And now what we're waiting for is the final stage, the last chapter, restoration. Now the problem with the prosperity gospel is that they overrealize, that is, they expect the promise of the restoration in its fullness to be present for us here and now. What they do is they misinterpret the promises that we find in Scripture because they don't understand where we are in the story of Scripture. You can, I call this a forward-oriented uh, error. There's other kind of backwards-oriented errors. So I think a lot of the conversations that Christians have about confusing things, like maybe even what's happening right now with the social justice movement. Uh, A lot of people want to go to the Old Testament and interpret things in the Old Testament that were part of a particular storyline that is no longer active in the life of the people of God today. And that causes them to make all kinds of funky errors. Uh, To move out to something less controversial, uh, because we're all Baptists, right? Uh, Our friends who are doing good gospel work in like the PCA, but they're they're mistaken on paedo-baptism because they're, they don't see how the pieces of the story fit together. They're interpreting the new covenant body in light of Old Testament realities. And so because they misunderstand how the story flows together, they want you to baptize your baby. Well, this is, that's exactly what the prosperity gospel is doing, except for instead of 
having errors that are looking backwards and how we relate to the Old Testament, their errors are oriented towards the future and what God's promises mean for us then. So uh, just to give you an easy example, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Who can tell me what it's about? The chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. What's the kind of big hubbub there? I heard a whisper. The resurrection, right? There's an issue in the church uh, at Corinth. Some, some sneaky guys have crept in and they've started to teach some weird stuff on the resurrection. And Paul feels like he has to address it because if he doesn't, they're going to lose the gospel. And uh, he has a very long systematic argument. And towards the end of his argument, he says, well, if the resurrection isn't going to happen, then what are we supposed to make of these glorified bodies that God has promised us, right? And towards the end of chapter 15... He starts teaching the Corinthians about this promise that we have, uh, that they have, that we have, that one day God is not only going to make all things new, but he's going to make us new, right? We're, gonna, we're not going to live in these bodies of, of death, right? The, these putrefying jars of clay, right? The things that, you know, your, your hip goes bad and cancer comes up and every springtime the allergies make you wish that you would have had cancer because it's so terrible. Like one day all that's going to disappear and you're going to receive a glorified body. Well, if you listen to the prosperity gospel, they'll have you believe that the promise of the glorified body is a promise that you can have right here, right now, right? You're supposed to have the fullness of healing for your human body right here, right now, and Jesus purchased that for you on the cross. Well, friends, if that's true, then what is good about the, what, what kind of good news is there in this promise of the glorified body? Well, there is no good news. I can have the glorified body now or I can have the glorified body then. It's kind of up to me on the timing whether or not I have enough faith. So they tend to look at promises that are for the future and say all those promises belong to me right here, right now. Uh, And that's just very foreign to the way the New Testament talks, the way the New Testament thinks, the way the New Testament teaches us. The New Testament is very eschatologically oriented. What that means is that the New Testament is always going, hey, I know this is really hard right now, but just you wait, right? Like a new day is coming and things are going to get better. The book of Revelation, minus the S. Uh, the book of Revelation, we tend to like, we're very afraid of it. It's very, you know, ooh, dragon tails knocking stars out of the sky. And what am I supposed to, you know, the beast and ooh, 666. And it's very hard to interpret. And that's true. But we forget that the book of Revelation was written to a church to help them in the midst of persecution And it was pointing forward to the day when uh, everything would be made new, right? It was meant to be a comfort to them. And that's the way the New Testament functions. So one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel is so horrendous is it removes from us the thing that's supposed to strengthen us as we suffer through our journey in this dark kingdom, right? We're, We're on this journey from, you know, we lived in a garden. We were cast out into the wilderness. God has come back and made all things new in his son Jesus, but we're still trekking through the wilderness, and one day we're going to get back to the new and better garden that's going to be, like, totally rad. And uh, it's really hard. The journey is not easy. And one of the things that God does to strengthen us for this journey is he points us forward, and he goes, just you wait, just you wait. And the prosperity gospel robs us of that tool that God has given us to make it to persevere. The next way, uh, the next element of the prosperity gospel You'll see a creature-creator inversion. A creature-creator inversion. What do I mean by that? Well, God is the creator. We are the creatures. The prosperity gospel inverts that. 
You saw in that clip the little God theology, the prosperity gospel, where the faith movement teaches us to think about ourselves as God. And in so doing, the only thing that can possibly happen is that God is then subsequently demoted to the position of man, right? The prosperity gospel makes God our servant. I want this. I want that. I'm going to claim it. So now God is not the creator. He's the servant. He's the one who has to, you know, meet our every whim and need. A good example of this can be seen in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, which one of you biblical theologians can tell me what the Gospel of Mark is basically about? It's kind of driving home one main point. Who can tell me? Anybody? Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, Will, Luke, you guys can participate in this. Well done, Will. You have not embarrassed me in front of these people. Your training is paying off. Yeah, it's about Jesus is the Son of God. You see that uh, at the very beginning, uh, right? It says the beginning of the gospel of, of you know, th- actually, let me just turn to it. <laughs> I can't quote scripture from the back of my, I, I lived a crazy non-Christian life before I got saved. My brain doesn't work. Yeah, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? And then the end of the gospel of Mark is, you know, the centurion sitting there staring up at Jesus on the cross, and he makes a confession. Do you remember what that confession was? Surely this man was the Son of God. And everything throughout the Gospel of Mark is just constantly reinforcing that point. So you see Jesus immediately steps onto the scene. He's baptized. Do you remember what the Father says to Jesus when he's baptized? And we've gotten away from the hand raising. What's going on with that? We guys, we've got to be rule followers. Somebody shoot your hand up and tell me, yes. This is my beloved son. Jesus immediately has confrontation with uh, the Pharisees, right? And he demonstrates authority over them. And people respond and they say, who is this man that has authority over the teachers of the law? And then Jesus has contact with demonic forces. And he crushes them. (laughs) And people go, who is this man that has authority over even the demons? And then Jesus has contact with yet another force that man is not supposed to be supreme over. He has contact with nature. You remember that? He's in the boat, right? The wind and the waves. The disciples look at each other like, oh, who is this man? Jesus has contact with sickness and disease, disease that cannot be healed by anyone. He heals it. The crowd murmurs and looks around and they ask themselves, who is this man? And if you're paying attention like at all, the point should be pretty obvious. He's not a man. He is the God-man. He is Jesus, the Son of God. And in this, what we see is that there is a very significant, distinct, sharp contrast between the creator and the creation. The reason why everyone is so blown away by Jesus is because if he was just a man, he couldn't do any of these things. It's not normal for men, even if you just, you know, You don't have to uh, be a cessationist like me to just read your Bible and understand that, like, miracles aren't common. It's not like every page in your Bible somebody's doing something crazy and miraculous. They're very sparse in the Bible. It's very unusual. There's a reason why when Jesus did some of the things he did, people couldn't make sense of it. Because human beings don't do these things. Creatures don't do this kind of stuff in creation. They don't have the ability nor the authority to do so. Who does? God. And so Jesus goes around and demonstrates 
his divinity by showing himself to be the author of creation, to have authority over creation. And the prosperity gospel trains Christians to think the opposite. It trains us to think that we are little gods, that we have the ability, uh, this can be most easily seen in the abuse of the proverb, the power of life and death is in the tongue, right? The prosperity gospel says that this verse means that you can speak things into existence or you can speak death into existence, you know? So don't say I'm sick because if you do, you're claiming that for yourself and you're speaking that evil on yourself, you know? Say, I, I feel good, I feel healthy, you know, 104 temperature, <laughs> about to go into a coma. I feel great. That's what you're supposed to do because you have the power to speak life and death with your tongue. Well, who's really the one who has the power to speak life and death? He's been doing it since the beginning. In the beginning, God spoke. You read the rest of the Bible, God's word gives life. And whenever life is taken away, God is also the one who is doing that. What does that proverb mean? Well, it's just that. It's a proverb. A proverb is a maxim. It's something that's supposed to communicate a, a general spiritual truth in a pithy way that in a fallen world is basically true, right? So you think about raise a child up in the way that they will go and they won't turn from it. Well, that's not a promise that you do everything right and your kid's definitely going to get saved. That's generally speaking, if you are a good parent who tries to raise your children up in the Lord, you should expect fruit from that. But it's not a guarantee, the same thing with this proverb. What it's basically saying is the same thing that the book of James is saying, right? You can use your tongue to do good. You can use your speech, your words to create life, not in the same way that God does, but to, you know, to be useful, to be helpful. Or you can use it and bring about destruction, relational destruction, economic destruction, even uh, the destruction of your health, okay? So there's more that we could focus on, guys. Uh, I just gave you um, four core elements of the prosperity gospel. If you want to read more, buy my book. <laughs> All the proceeds will go to Joel Osteen and his publishing ministry. I know they're hurting. All right. Like, I have no idea how I'm doing on time, so you just tell me when we need to kill it, because I got a lot left. <laughs> cool. All right. I know that you guys would never, I know you want to sit here all day, right? Amen? It's, 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 it's not like it's a beautiful day outside. You have nowhere to be. All right, okay. Uh, I think it's important to understand uh, the history of doctrinal development. Uh, you can take this and kind of a, apply it to something else. So uh, I do a podcast with a guy, and we just got through covering critical theory. If you don't know anything about that, don't worry about it but it's a really dangerous thing that's invading certain churches. And uh, I think most people don't understand it just because they don't know where it came from. But as soon as you can begin to see where the idea came from, well, then you can begin to see just how dangerous it is. So I think it's helpful to understand how an idea came to be, how a doctrine came into existence. And uh, the same thing is true of the prosperity gospel. Having said that, asterisk, let me qualify, uh, Tracing the etymology of a particular idea is always difficult. It's like notoriously hard. And no matter how good of a job you do, someone's always going to try to pick it apart. So I'm, I'm not going to go super deep. I'm, deep. I'm just going to try to give you uh, some broad uh, brushstrokes here of historically how the prosperity gospel came to be. Okay? So uh, the first thing that I think you need in order... By, by the way, does anybody know how old the prosperity gospel is? Again, we're not hand-raising. You know, I give up. It's not my church. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I think we could say that this modern manifestation of the prosperity gospel 
is a little over 100 years old. Uh, I think Blake was very wise to read those scriptures to you earlier to show us that really it's the, it's the same song and dance, right? Like human beings are greedy and they're going to use whatever they can to satisfy their greed. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so even in the days of the Bible, people were trying to peddle God's word for profit. They were practicing the prosperity gospel. Having said that, the prosperity gospel that we know of today that's kind of set the world on fire, that's kind of taking over, uh, yeah, about 100 years. Okay, maybe, maybe a, a little bit older than that. But uh, he, here's some things that contributed to its development. First of all, uh, the first thing is Methodism. Methodism. Do we have any Methodists here? Any visitors from a Methodist church? Well, then I will speak freely. No. <laughs> no, when I speak of Methodism, I'm not necessarily referring to the Methodist church as it exists today. Methodism, if you're familiar with the history of how that church came to be, it grew out of the Anglican church uh, in England, the Church of England. There were some guys, they had a holiness club. They were concerned that, uh, and they were right, that the Church of England was corrupt, that people weren't caring about holiness, that carnality had taken over the church, and they were like, enough is enough, we're not going to tolerate this. And they wanted to preach, and they wanted to teach, and they wanted to bring about change, but the church wouldn't let them. (laughs) So they were like, okay, you're not going to let us, we're going to take matters into our own hands, we're going to go out into the fields, and we're going to preach and teach in these tents to anyone who will listen. We'll just kind of set up shop, and people will come out, and, and, uh, you know, this is kind of the beginning of the come out movement, you know. Prophets going to different towns and saying, your church is corrupt, you should leave that and start a new, better church. Well, that all started with Methodism. If you're familiar with John Wesley and George Whitfield, theologically, on the opposite side of some, of, of some things, but they both grew out of that movement, this Methodism movement uh, that started in England and, and the UK, and I, know, I don't know, like UK, British, I don't know how to phrase that, but they started over there on that island, that, that not-so-good island over there. I'm just kidding. I just have to pick on. (laughs) You guys gave us so much. We're so thankful. Uh, And then finally, it made its way over here to America. And man, did the Lord use some of these Methodist preachers, right? The the methods that they employed were very useful. Uh, You guys have heard of the Great Awakening? Yes? The Lord used it to draw, you know, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people to himself Produce some of the greatest preachers and teachers that the church has known. Who knows where America would be if that hadn't happened. But like all good things in a fallen world, uh, there's always bad mixed in with the good. So some of the bad that came along with Methodism was the idea of teaching without any kind of formal authoritative accountability. You see, uh, Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, traditionally Reformed, Baptists, We disagree significantly on doctrine, okay? Some of us less significantly, some of us very significantly, like could not disagree more. But one thing that we all have in common is that all of our churches agree that there should be some kind of oversight, some sort of accountability over the preaching and teaching of God's word. Not just anybody should be able to pick up a Bible, go out and preach without somebody saying like, hey, we affirm you in that, we We validate your calling. We're going to oversee this, and we're going to support you in your calling. Now, the way that they do that is different. Presbyterians, they have their own own hierarchical system with presbyteries that oversee the ordination of guys and give them permission to do that. Baptists, right, we believe that the congregation affirms men and their gifts, and we recognize the qualifications for people to serve in these offices. And Roman Catholics, we won't get into that. But we 
all, regardless of the, our difference in doctrinal beliefs and even the differences in how we view accountability, we all believe in accountability. Methodism is a new development. Even in the early church when you have roaming prophets, uh, there's a document that was produced very early on in the life of the church called the Didache. And one of the main things that the Didache dealt with was how to deal with people who are traveling around professing to be prophets of God. Like there's accountability built in there. So one of the very new things that popped up on the scene of church history was Methodism with its preaching minus accountability. Now listen, when you have John Wesley and George Whitfield going around preaching the gospel, you're not super worried about accountability. You know, like these guys are great. They're amazing. The Lord is using them. They're powerful. They're, they're basically orthodox. But what happens when you don't have a John Wesley or George Whitfield? Can, can someone think of a name of a preacher who was prominent during those times who went around preaching a bunch of nonsense in the Second Great Awakening? Anybody? Will? Charles Finney. Thanks for saving the day yet again. Luke, you're up next, so brace yourself. Yeah, Charles Finney. Will, can you tell us more about Charles Finney? Try to reverse engineer. Yeah. So when you have a, a John Wesley or a George Whitfield, you're like, ah, accountability. Who needs it? When you have Charles Finney come along, you're like, whoa, we all need it. This is not good. Things are turning really bad. And so from that point forward, in the American church in particular, but then going out to the Western church in general and then out into the world beyond that, came this this intuition. It's not written down in a book anywhere, but it's just this intuition that we have as Christians that sure, anyone can just pick up their Bibles, go out and preach, and they don't need any kind of accountability. They're Christians and therefore they can do it. But for like 1,800 years of church history, no one had ever really thought like that. So it makes sense then that these prosperity preachers would pretty quickly find themselves doing a Methodism approach to their ministry. It's really hard for a guy to set up shop in a town where there's already four churches. Maybe two of them are not so orthodox, but they're not outright heretical. And then you got two more that are like, one's good, one's great. And then this prosperity gospel guy comes and tries to set up shop in town. They're going to run him out of town. Well, guess what? You don't need a building. You, you, don't, you don't have to be planted here. You can just get a tent, get a truck. And just drive around and find a field and go and preach. And if people come out of the town and listen to you, boom, you're good to go. One way that Methodism contributed to the development of the prosperity gospel. Next you have the Gilded Age. All right, you guys have been kind of slow. Who's a history buff here? Anybody? History? Yeah? Tell us, Drew, right? Gilded Age. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man, you're smart as a whip. That's awesome, yeah. Yeah, the Gilded Age, it's right after the time of Reconstruction. So, right, Civil War, things are really, really bad. Everything is destroyed, but we're going to rebuild the Industrial Revolution. You know, it's, everything seems to be kind of picking back up. Uh, it, it's called Gilded because... Uh, when something is gilded, it's like an iron, uh, like a ball of iron ore covered in a very thin layer of gold. So it appears like there's prosperity, but in fact there is none. That's kind of 
the state of our country uh, in, the, in the day of the, uh, the Gilded Age. And along with the Gilded Age during this time, you have the rise of things like the concepts of self-mastery and self-improvement. Uh, there's this idea that like I can, I can elevate myself, I can develop myself, I can learn new skills, I'm not dependent on the community or on an apprenticeship, like I can do this. And so you see the rise of things like gymnasiums, right, which I know it seems normal now, like raise your hand if you have a gym membership of any kind in this room. Surprisingly low, a, n- a not very fit church. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, 300 years ago, nobody would have raised their hand, and the idea that anybody would do anything like working out was very strange, you know. It's like if you were an athlete, you would, if, and then you were just going to do manual labor if, if you didn't, and that was working out. But you have the rise of gymnasiums, you have the rise of like popular mechanics, right? So these magazines are going out, and people are learning how to fix things on their own. You don't need an expert to do that anymore. You have the development of personal sewing machines. So you know, if you want something, now you don't have to put a little girl working in a factory where she's going to get her finger chopped off from a machine in an unsafe working condition. You can actually, like, sew your own dress at home. And all of this changed the way people in general, but Americans in particular, perceived the world around them. I can fix myself. I can improve myself. Now, hang on to that. Then you have the discovery of the invisible world. We think about, you know, all the germs on your skin and the little bugs that live on your eyelashes. You know, yeah, they're there. They're like little cal- caterpillars just eating up all your little eye boogers all day long. Can you say eye boogers? I did. We think about germs and, and the microscopic and, you know, we can just slide. Like you can go buy a microscope at Walmart right now and you can like examine germs under, uh, you know, that light. You can have your own Petri dish. But humans hadn't known anything like that prior to these scientific developments that arose in the Gilded Age. And all of a sudden, people are learning that there's something in the world that's invisible but real. And that changes the way that they think about the world. Louis Pasteur uh, (laughs) could have contributed to the development of the prosperity gospel in ways that he didn't even understand. Then you have this thing called, and you guys are going to appreciate this, and you probably already know this, but I'll say it anyways. The Neoplatonic Theory of Correspondence. You know what I'm talking about. You know, Plato, you know, he thought that there was this kind of earthly realm and then there was uh, a more perfect spiritual representation of what we experience here on earth, but like in the heavenly realm. So like the chair that you're sitting on, this is like an earthly chair. It's fine, it's great, but it's composed of matter. But there's like the perfect heavenly chair up in the heavenly realm. And so now that people are beginning to see the invisible world, they're thinking, they start combining that with Platonism, and, and now the, the, the sky's the limit. Who knows what's out there? Who knows how we can interact with this, this world around us? You have the development of something called new thought. You ever heard of Mary Baker Eddy? Christian science, right? She took this and kind of ran away with it and said, you know, there's no such thing in sickness in the world. There's just only the perception of sickness. And what I can do is I can channel my invisible life, my thought life, which I can't see it, but it's real. I can take that and I can channel it and I can use it to affect the visible world. So I can use my thoughts to change my physical feelings, okay, my, my, my wealth. You see how that contributed to the prosperity gospel. Then there was the rise of Pentecostalism, right? Pentecostalism is the view that what happened at the day of Pentecost was normative for the church. That's why it's called Pentecostalism. The spirit fell, all these spiritual gifts, signs and wonders, speaking in tongues. 
And then, you know, uh, I, I believe that that was a unique event in salvation history, not something that's going to be recurrent until Jesus comes back. But Pentecostals say, no, that's going to happen uh, until Jesus comes back. And what, what, what you see with the rise of Pentecostalism is two things. Number one, people begin to expect m- miracles to be normative in the Christian life. Right? The whole Bible, not a lot of miracles in here. You see miracles kind of popping up at very key places in the story of Scripture, in the story of redemption, right? And it's usually, it has something to do with what God is doing in the life of his people where he's making a big change. So can somebody tell me like the first place in Scripture where you just see a big cluster of miracles? Yeah. Sir? No, but you did then though. Good job, man. Mm, Much before that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the Exodus event, right? God is forming his covenant people, and he's just like, bang, 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 miracle after miracle, because he's doing something massive there. And then as they travel through the desert, and as they go into the promised land, like God is like visibly demonstrating his power and his presence to like reassure his people and to communicate to the nations, like, I am here and I am at work. And then there's kind of like radio silence. Not a lot of miracles happening after that. You get some stuff with Elijah and Elisha, you know, some floating axe heads. But even then, there's kind of like some one-off stuff here and there. You know, the oil lasts longer, but not much. And then when does the next big string of miracles come? Huh? Yeah, oh, got a hand back there. No? Okay. What do you say? The Gospels, that's right. Yes, when Jesus comes, Boom. God is doing something big with his people, and so miracles start popping up, and they're hot and they're heavy. Jesus and his apostles, and all of a sudden, things are really taking off. Well, Pentecostalism teaches Christians to think that these very unique events in redemption history are things that we should just be always expecting, especially if we're being faithful. Okay. Uh, Additionally, Pentecostalism, in order to do that, they just... You know, they, they value extra biblical revelation, right? When you believe in, that prophecy still exists for today, that thus saith the Lord still happens now, then it's very easy for you to stop placing primacy on what God has already said in light of what he could potentially be saying through someone who claims that God is speaking through them. Uh, have you ever been in a situation with someone where you're trying to talk to them about something and they say, well, God told me, and you feel like, oh, well, you just kind of ended the conversation right there. Like, I mean, unless you're like me and you don't mind being rude. You're like, but did he though? But most of us, if somebody says, well, God told me that so-and-so and such and such, you'd be like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's it, you know. That, that's what Pentecostalism did for us. You know, it's, it's a doctrine that was not existent before roughly 100 years ago. And then it arose and now all of a sudden it's just normal for us to say, oh, okay, God could have told you that. And I guess I don't need to look at my Bible. Next, uh, we already talked about new thought. Sickness is the affliction of the mind. Fix your thoughts. Cure your sickness. Then we have the popularizers. So, you know, every, every good and bad idea needs, needs to be championed by someone or by a group of people. And so you have the rise of these incredibly charismatic, intelligent, driven men and women who take up the prosperity gospel and they run with it and they just, they take it to the ends of the proverbial earth. You have people like Oral Roberts. You ever heard of Oral Roberts University? Yep, one of the largest universities in the South, still going. You have men like E.W. Kenyon. 
his significant contribution to the development of the prosperity gospel, he's like the godfather of the prosperity gospel. Uh, what he did was he took it and he really made it Christian. So uh, before E.W. Kenyon, there were some Christians who had gotten into it, but really what they were doing is they were just taking new mind thought, Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy stuff, and they were just syncretizing with their own. They were like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I believe in this. What Kenyon did, did was he said, okay, if this is true, if I can affect my, my physical health and my wealth by my thoughts, which come out through my words, how does that happen? What's the mechanism by which that's accomplished? And he goes, ah, I got it, the cross. So like the reason why any prosperity gospel preacher interprets Isaiah 53 the way that they do, that Jesus died to make us happy and healthy and wealthy, is because E.W. Kenyon is the first one who took up that text and applied it in that way. You have men like Norman Vincent Peale. You guys familiar? You heard that name? You know who Donald Trump is? Ever heard of him? Yes? No? He was our president. Norman Vincent Peale was his pastor. I'm not getting political, but if you've ever heard Donald Trump up there saying something, and you know it can't be true, and you know that he knows that everyone else knows that it's not true, but it doesn't faze him a bit, he's just going to keep going. He learned that from Norman Vincent Peale, his pastor, uh, for a long time. Another popularizer, TBN. Listen, think about how difficult it was to get out a false gospel, right? First of all, you have to deal with all these, ba- these, these healthy churches that really don't want you around, okay? But then you have Methodism. Okay, great, I can buy a tent, I can get some gas in my truck, and I can drive around and go into a field. But even then, there's stories of, like, churches coming out and being like, we don't want you here, and, like, running off these false teachers. But even, let's say that these false teachers are unobstructed. There's nobody there to really hold them to account, and they have big crowds, and everyone from the town comes out and believes, well, it's still a real slog. It's a process, you know. You just, just one long road trip and you're driving from town to town to town. And even if you're super effective in that, it just takes a very long time to get this message out to people. Well, with the advent of TBN, that was super easy. I can just pump it right into your living room, right? There it is. So there's more that can be said about that, but I feel the time slipping away from me and I want to finish, so... Let's, let's cover three more things. I want to give you guys some cheap and easy apologetics. So uh, apologetics, anybody? Hand, what does apologetics mean? Yes, and I like how you raised your hand and said it at the same time. So you follow the letter of the law, but not really the spirit of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's defending the faith. It's giving an answer for the hope that's in you, right, according to 1 Peter. And uh, I think sometimes when we think about defending the faith, we think like, ooh, that's what those guys do with seminary degrees, right? Those guys who, you know, they've read all the texts, they've interacted with all the books, they know all the bad authors, and they have every argument, you know, on a Word document in their Excel spreadsheet. But the truth is, if you know your Bible even a little bit, you can be an apologist against the prosperity gospel. So these are the little things that I like to give out to people that I think are pretty good little, like, like putting a burr under someone's saddle. You know, like, listen, if you have a family member or a friend or a coworker who's in the prosperity gospel and you're trying to help them see their way out of that, the odds of you sitting down, opening your Bible, walking them through a text, and them going, got it, I was totally wrong. You're totally right. Man, you showed me this was helpful. Thank you so much. I'm going to be in heaven thanks to you. I've been doing this a long time. Not once has that ever happened, okay? What most of the time happens is that you put like a rock in someone's shoe. 
you know? And then, like, after they walk on it, they go, this thing is driving me crazy. And they take their shoe off, and now they start to examine. They start to go, oh, okay, there, there, there might be something to this. So here are, here are a couple of those. I like to ask people, if everyone has healing in the atonement, then why did the church need the gift of healing? Remember, God gives good gifts to the church. He gives, you know, all kinds of gifts. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, uh, uh, teaching, healing was one of them, right? Well, if, if everyone can have access to healing in the atonement, then why did he give certain people in the early church the gift of healing? An interesting question. If we can claim healing, then why do we need to ask the elders of the church to pray for the sick? Turn with me to James 5.14 real quick. James 5, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him cling to the cross in the promise of healing in the atonement, and he will be healed. Now, that's not what it says. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Right? So if, if, if this is something that's supposed to be normative in the church, like we pray for sick people, that just doesn't jive with the prosperity gospel which says you should never be sick again. Paul assumes that the church is going to be full of sick people. Uh, next, you know, by his stripes we are healed. That's the, the scripture, Isaiah 53, right? Jesus came to, to make us happy, healthy, and wealthy, and that's based on Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. What I like to do is just remind people that we should let scripture interpret scripture. And instead of like you feeling like you have to sit there and like dissect the Hebrew of Isaiah 53 and break down the exegetical and, oh, it's a chiasm and all that. You don't have to do that. All you can do is turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, and show them how Peter interprets that verse. So turn with me to 1 Peter. Look at it. You're like you're halfway there. James, right on over into 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Peter quotes Isaiah 53, not in reference to physical healing, but to spiritual healing. Not to physical sickness, but to spiritual sickness. Let scripture interpret scripture. I cannot tell you how many times I've been in a conversation with someone who believes the prosperity gospel, who quotes Isaiah 53, and I say, Ah, you know what? Let's turn to 1 Peter 2.24. And you don't have to have a PhD in well, anything, really, to be able to do what I just did, right? All you have to do is be a student of the Word. Uh, next, we can just look at Paul's example in his labors, right? Wherever Paul goes, he doesn't seem to be abundantly prospering. Do you remember what he told the Thessalonians? He said, you remember my time with you, how I was baking in the sun, I was breaking my back, I was a tent maker, I suffered and I sacrificed so that you all could prosper. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor. And those two phrases are significant. One 
just kind of refers to work. The other one refers to like arduous, painful, difficult work. With toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So Paul is not living the lavish life. And listen, Paul was specifically called by Jesus himself and commissioned to go out as an apostle. If there were ever anybody you would, experience, you would expect to experience the height of material prosperity in light of God's affection for him and his call, it would be the apostle Paul. And Paul says, guys, I'm working 16 hours a day so that I can be useful for the church. Right? You look at Paul's example of suffering. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. And that's 39 in case you were doing the math. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, that's that same language there. Uh, as Second Thessalonians, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from, apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me, my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant? What could you suffer that Paul has not suffered here? He suffered relationally. He suffered economically. He suffered physically. You see here at the end, he says, and on top of all that, maybe the worst thing of all is my anxiety that I wrestle with about these churches. He's suffering emotionally as, call, as, as God's chosen apostle. Just, if somebody is just talking to you about the prosperity gospel, just say, let's go to 2 Corinthians. Paul, the beloved apostle of Jesus Christ, and let, let's see what his life was like and what we should expect as followers of Jesus. Of course, you can go to other places. You can just say, hey, let's read through the book of Job together right? Or you can say, let's look at the life of the one that Job was pointing to, the life of our master, Jesus, who said, listen, I'm going to suffer. That means that you're going to suffer because you're following me. You're supposed to be imitators of God, and I am God, the second person of the Trinity, and in my ministry, I have suffered. You should expect that to be normal for you. Take up your cross and follow me. You can remind people that Jesus is God's beloved son, God has never loved and never will love anyone more than he loves his son, Jesus Christ. Even the love that he has for you, he has for you because you are in his son, Jesus Christ. And if God loves his son, Jesus, this much, and it was the will of the Father to crush him, then how can you say that it's his will that you should only and always prosper because he loves you? Now, there's two more things I want to address, but I am worried about time. Are we doing okay? I mean... Seven, the number of perfection. Let's do this. I think the question that I encounter most often when I give these talks is people come up to me and they go, man, my mom, my dad, my son, my cousin, my aunt, my friend that I've been friends with my whole life, they're in the prosperity gospel. What should I do? How should I think about them? Do they need to be saved? Are they really Christians? So I just want to give you a kind of framework to process these questions through. Maybe you have someone in your life that you're wondering about these very things for them. We have to begin by stating we can't know 
someone's heart, right? Like God didn't give us x-ray vision. I can't look in someone's heart and see if it's been converted from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And the Bible wouldn't expect me to. The most normal pattern in the Bible is to uh, examine someone's profession of faith and to see if they are living out the, the truths of the gospel and that they actually have the true gospel. That's all we can really go on. What they believe, what they profess about Jesus, Matthew 16, and how they live. Now, if someone professes to believe the gospel of the prosperity gospel, what I tell people is that I just don't think you should have confidence in their salvation. You're not rendering a final judgment on, your soul, on their soul. You're not pretending to be God. You're not saying they are for sure saved or they are for sure not saved. You're taking a hesitant posture, so hesitant, in fact, that I think you should be inclined to approach them as someone who needs to be evangelized. I get this from places like Matthew 18. Can you guys turn there with me real quick? In Matthew 18, I'm sure Blake has walked you guys through this ad nauseum, so I don't want to uh, do it again. But at the end of Matthew 18, uh, they're dealing with sin, starting in verse 15, actually halfway through. There's sin in the church. A brother sins. Another brother goes and confronts him about it. If he listens, great. If he doesn't, we've got to get somebody else involved. If he listens to them, great. If they don't, well, now we have to get the whole church involved. And if they won't listen to even the church, well, that's what we're going to look at right now. He says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean, a Gentile and tax collector? Well, those are two ways that if you were a Jew, you would have seen people going astray from the true path, right? A Gentile, obviously, you never had the, the truth of, of God and his word and his covenant promises. And a tax collector, someone who had betrayed the covenant, right? You were working for Rome and oppressing God's people. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is, you see this further developed in 1 Corinthians 5, this is church discipline. You need to treat this person not as a, a true believer, but as someone who needs to be evangelized, okay? Someone who doesn't actually know God. I think a, an easy way for us to think about this is, is by re removing ourselves from the prosperity gospel and putting ourselves in a different scenario like our relationship with our, more, uh, our Roman Catholic friends. Do I think you can be a Christian and be a Roman Catholic? If you believe that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, yes, I do think you can be. Do I think that there are true Christians in the Roman Catholic Church? Yes, and I don't know how they continue to do it. And I think that any faithful loving relationship with a, a true Christian in the Roman Catholic Church should be to call them out of that and to call them into a true church where they can live out the true gospel under the truth and authority of God's word, okay? Having said that, I do believe that there are Christians in the Roman Catholic Church, but if I talk with a guy and I have a pretty good sense that he is a Christian, like he believes the same gospel as me, but he's still in the Roman Catholic Church, I'm still going to treat him evangelistically. Why? Because as long as you're part of a false church, I just can't have confidence in your salvation. Remember, this is what the role of the church is supposed to be. So ultimately, as you think about these things, I don't even want you to think about it from an individualistic, uh, an, an individualistic perspective. I also want you to think about it from a corporate perspective. When you're assessing the salvation of someone that you know, are they, are they not? Just ask yourself, could this person be a member of a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church? Could they affirm the same gospel that a true Christian church affirms? And if the answer to that is no, then I think if you love them, you'll treat them more evangelistically, okay? I think that's probably seven minutes, right? Three more? Dude, let's keep going. 
we can just keep adding and adding. Um, let's turn with me to Second John real quick. Super short letter written to deal with Gnostic heresies in the church. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it right now. It's really bad stuff about Jesus saying that he wasn't fully man, he was only God, and that he just appeared to be a man. Okay? Verse 7, let's start there. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So, guys, there is such a thing as a deceiver. There are false teachers. They are out there confessing the wrong Jesus. And according to 2 John, they're antichrist. That means that they are doing the anti of what Jesus came to do. Jesus comes and he tells us the truth about ourselves, about God, our relationship with him, and he tells us how we can fix that. An antichrist comes and tells us lies and tries to separate us from God. Verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So friends, when I tell you to just examine someone in the gospel that they, that they confess, that they say that they believe, to, to decide whether or not you should be hopeful or less than hopeful about their salvation, I'm just pulling that from here, okay? If they don't have the right teaching about Jesus, if they don't make the right profession, Second John says they don't have God. Moving on, verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, and he's talking about teachers now, probably tra- traveling prophets. So if a false prophet comes, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Brothers and sisters, it is supremely important that you not only reject the prosperity gospel, but also not have anything to do with people who are involved with the prosperity gospel in such a way that would lead the watching world to look at you guys and say, oh, they're on the same team. Because if they do, you could be unwittingly leading them into the prosperity gospel, the world, and then what happens? Well, the text says, you are taking part in their wicked works. In closing, let me say this. Uh, it's really easy to pick on these prosperity gospel people and, you know, the, the lady with the pink hair, you know, the Zsa Zsa DeVore set up on TBN. It's real easy to make fun of the Creflo dollars who are asking for $400 million private jets. But I think there's something that, that we also have to be careful of. Earlier, I told you about the spectrum of the prosperity gospel. I said over here you have like the crazies and over here you have kind of the squishy churches that practice a light version of the prosperity gospel. Well, there's actually one step down from that even on the spectrum and it's, it's the place where you could be. You see, what we've learned about the prosperity gospel is that really the heartbeat of it, the essence of it is that we value the gift above the giver. And it's totally possible for you the members of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, to believe the prosperity gospel and not even know it. Just because you have a statement of faith that is solid and just because you have teaching that rejects the prosperity gospel does not mean that you in your heart are not serving these idols. It doesn't mean that you don't love and care for the things of God's creation more than God himself. As a matter of fact, I think we are the people who are most likely to be deceived we, you know, the punch that hurts the worst is the one that you don't see coming. And, and friends, we won't see it coming. We think, oh, we got all our doctrinal ducks in the row. Blake's a great teacher and we're getting a solid word and I'm in Bible studies and look at our statement of faith. And 
What are you doing with what God has given you? How are you treating his creation? Are you clinging to this life? Are you clinging to your health? Are you clinging to your prosperity? Or are you willing to go out and lay down your life and truly die for the sake of God and his glory and the advancement of the gospel? Do not be self-deceived, brothers and sisters. I think on the last day, we will be surprised at how many of us who thought we had it all together were actually probably further away than anyone else. Yeah, let me pray. Father, we love you. We are blown away by your grace. We recognize that it is only by your grace that we have come to know the truth. Father, we pray that you'll keep us humble. We pray that you'll help us to be discerning. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be fruitful and useful as we encounter people who are uh, enslaved by the lies of the prosperity gospel. We pray that the brothers and sisters here today uh, have been strengthened by this meager talk, this, this presentation. I pray that they will be reminded of the truth and beauty and the robust nature of the true gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and that they will champion it, that they will give their lives, all their time, all their talent, all their treasure to see this gospel go out to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in the most holy and mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to stay up here for a second. I'm going to ask him a few questions. And then for the last 10 minutes or so, if you've got a question for Sean about something he said, uh, whether it's from scripture or from history or just one of the admonitions he gave us, certainly raise your hand. So you can ask it. It could benefit everyone. But if it's like super granular, like, hey, where do you get his tattoo and what year? Don't do that. Uh, Focus on what he talked about and how you think it might benefit. So, Sean, a few things just to review for those who maybe didn't take notes, but you can listen to this on the podcast again. Uh, Some of the main elements you mentioned were faith, wealth, health, and victory. Uh, Many of these obviously are in the scriptures in one way or another, so we're not denying that these themes are not in the Bible. Uh, One theme you heard a lot is about exalting the gift above the giver. Mm -hmm. Um, One common prayer that I think all of us have prayed at some point in time, and I think it it, it can be biblical, but I think there's a lot of baggage loaded in it, are things like, God bless America, or God bless you, or may God's blessings be upon you. What's a way that we as Christians can view God's blessings in the right way and pray for God's blessings, but not with all the baggage loaded in there of God bless us so that we might have the opportunity to stay in a $20 million hotel? Yeah. yeah. Or God, God has blessed us this year. We're in the black in the budget. We've got the best parking, the best bells and whistles, but there's like no concept of like spiritual growth sure so speak to us a little bit about how we can rightly understand blessings without throwing the baby without the bathwater that sort of thing yeah I think for most of us the issue is when we come to uh, assume that any good thing that we experience is a blessing and any hard or bad thing that we experience is a curse right that that's an that's that's what got Job's friends into trouble right Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there has to be a curse here um But the Bible doesn't really talk like that. It doesn't teach us to think like that. The Bible teaches us to think that a blessing is anything that God gives us that draws us closer to him. Anything that God does in our lives that glorifies his name through us. Anything that God does that equips us to carry out the mission that he's called us to. And what you see in the death of Jesus, Mm -hmm. to take it back to the cross, which is the archetype of like everything else that comes after it, 
uh, a lot of what God does to us to further the cause of the Great Commission, to glorify his name, to draw us closer to himself, is stuff that is not so comfortable, right? It could even be your death, right? So when you understand a blessing from that angle, I think it kind of just clears everything up. Then, you know, you could say, okay, uh, you know, I got cancer, or we lost our church building, or, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. And when you, when you interpret it through that lens, well, then it's easy to see, like, oh, Romans 8.28 makes sense in light of this. All things do work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Even if right now I don't understand how it's a blessing. That's mm-hmm. a big thing, too. Like, you may not understand how it's a blessing, but God's word very clearly tells you that if you are in Christ, it is a blessing. Mm-hmm. You may not even see how it's a blessing until you get to heaven, but it is a blessing. That's probably a good lens. And Sean, you know, you've given us both the origin, uh, the history, uh, some of the different manifestations, how there's a wide spectrum. So it's not just snake handling, uh, Creflo dollar jumping on dollar bills in the front of the service. I mean, I don't think I've got that in the store for tomorrow morning. Right. Uh, So I don't think we're going to be doing that. But we will be throwing money on the ground, just no (laughs) dancing on it. That's right. That's right. I mean, what are some... What are some ways that you think you kind of ended on this? And this is really my job as a pastor to have to know my people, know their temptations. You know, I don't intend on jumping on dollars. Uh, I like my F-150, but I don't really care to get a jet. Um, Right, right. And I like your F-150 too. Thank you. It's super nice. You know, in our statement of faith, we even have uh, a paragraph in one of our articles on salvation Hmm. uh, speaking out against the prosperity gospel, saying that faith in Christ does not automatically result in healing Etc. and so forth. Great. But what are some practical ways, though, that this can s- just slither in a church that's orthodox in its doctrine, yeah. uh, doesn't do anything obviously clear, like yeah. what we'll see on these televisions, but that some of us in our own hearts, maybe what we're reading or studying or yeah. how we think about God, what are just some practical yeah. ways you've seen in orthodox yeah. Southern Baptist churches where this is actually more prevalent than we think? Yeah, I once I heard a story about... Uh, a family who were members of a, you know, a middle-of-the-road Baptist church. You guys know what I'm talking about. You came from there. And they had been Christians their whole lives. They had gone to church camps. They're faithful to be there every Sunday. You know, they give regularly, you know. Maybe even they bump it from 10 to 11% every now and then, you know, just to really store up a few extra rewards in heaven. And then uh, one day their, uh, their, their son came home and said, I want to go to the mission field. And they weren't super pumped about it. But then the son said, like, and here's where I want to go. And it was a place where he would almost certainly die, right? And the parents were like, no, absolutely not. You cannot go. Uh, and they didn't let him go. Mm-hmm. And now he was young. But even when, they got, when he got older and he followed that path, the parents were very adamantly opposed to it. Well, why would they do that? I mean, they're Christians. They believe in the Great Commission. They understand that the church has been called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and that there's no such thing as like a truly shut door for the gospel, even in light of persecution. Mm. They know all the scriptures that say that we must die. They mm. know the stories about all the apostles who gave their lives up for the sake of the resurrected Christ. Mm. But when it came time for that theology that was up in the air to, to come home to them and their own family and the thought of losing their own son, mm. well, then they couldn't bear it anymore. And I don't think that in itself was the prosperity gospel. I think it's telling of the fact that their prosperity gospel had already rooted mm. deep down in their hearts without them knowing it, yeah. right? Uh, and you can do the same thing, you know. I don't want to give up my church tradition. It's going to hurt. I'm going to lose all my friends, all my family. Very clearly, God is calling me to be faithful to his word, but I'm not going to give that up. 
You could do the same thing with finances. You could do the same thing with your health. Let's say that you don't believe the prosperity gospel, and then one day you get the diagnosis. The test is positive. You're not going to live very long. Well, nobody's going to be happy about that. It's going to be difficult. But if that brings your world crashing down, if, you've, if you lose all hope, if you lose all joy, if you just can't keep going anymore because you realize you're about to give up this body of death, well then, man, I think that's pretty telling that you've bought into some form of the prosperity mm-hmm. gospel without knowing it. Well, it's interesting, I think, what you pointed on is that I think Orthodox Christians rightly speak about hell and that in Christ we escape the wrath of God. But I think in the same breath, we have this tendency to remove all risk Mm -hmm. in this life. And I think Philippians 2, which we were in this past fall, and the sisters will be studying, well, the track they're going, it could be when Noah graduates high school. But but Philippians 2.25, and I actually used your testimony as the Mm. introduction to the sermon about bad theology can actually lead to, you know, your life being taken, but also... Good theology can actually lay your life on the line for the right reasons. That's right. Uh, Philippians 2.25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And I think one of the ways that we can, even as parents, so I've got young kids, and this is going to get real for me as they get older. On the one hand, we don't want to be foolish and not consider different options, being unequally yoked, uh, being hasty with, financial decisions that would just tank someone and their family. But I think in the name of wanting to be prudent and wise uh, and not be foolish, we can remove all risk from the Christian life and realize that we follow a crucified Savior with a rugged cross, and the only thing he guarantees is forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and I'll be with you. Yeah. So in light of that, I don't know, have you guys heard of or read David Platt's Radical? So he's gotten some pushback on that book. It's a book where he basically calls us to take risks, right, to chase the gospel. And some of the pushback that he's gotten on that book is, David, it makes it sound like, you, you're making it sound like if I'm not, like, selling everything I own and going to, like, the, the deepest jungles to reach the furthest away tribal, tribal people there are, I'm not being faithful. Mm-hmm. And I just think that people forget the context in which David wrote that. He wrote that as the pastor of Brook Hills Church in Birmingham, which... It's like Lexus, Bentley, Bentley, Lexus, Mercedes, right? Like the parking lot alone is worth 10 times what our church building is worth. He wrote that way because of that context where people were just very content to follow Jesus and not risk anything at all ever, Mm -hmm. you know? So uh, I think you're right on, man. Like the gospel calls us to risk and to lose. And if, and if, if, if you think you can't do that, regardless of, I don't know what it is for you. It could be your health. It could be your finances. It could be your reputation. Mm-hmm. But if you're not willing to count that cost, then you are believing in some form of the prosperity yeah. gospel. Well, guys, in this last few minutes, anyone have a, a question? Drew's going to bring the mic to you just really quick. Ask the question. He'll take a lightning round of questions if you got him. I'm pumped so, about this. Jacob, Let's do it. hit him. Is this on? Okay. Uh, we saw in the video that you were in Peru and everything, yeah. and i I think most of us have seen the John Piper video about the, Ameri- the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel coming out of America. 
How did you did you see that in Peru as some of the missionaries from that place there? Yeah. And what did that translate to in something where they had so little? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's really bad. I, I, I would say I probably spent just as much time down there trying to combat stuff that other missionaries either had done or were doing as much as I was trying to evangelize or equip the churches to reach their tribal neighbors. So it's really bad. America, uh, American churches are exporting all of their, as John Piper says, crap uh, out to the world, this crap called gospel, and it's bad. Um, and how do they receive it? Well, if you are as poor as you can possibly be and somebody comes along and says, if you follow this God, you can be rich, why wouldn't you believe it? So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's burning the building down. Yeah. It, it led me to actually write a series of articles for Nine Marks, one of which was uh, stop sending missionaries down here, something like that, where I was just so frustrated that I was like, you know, I'm just nail on the keyboard and I sent it off. Send this to everyone you know in America. Just stop. Yeah, so. Gunner? Gunner. Sean, out of Mark 11, I think this is one of the favorite texts of the name it and claim it crowd. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples. He has the previous day cursed the fig tree. Mm -hmm. The next morning it's withered. His disciples are amazed. And he says, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and do not doubt it in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So what is the quick response to that? I'm going to have some fun here. They're looking nervous. Will? <laughs> right? I'm back to you, Will. Uh, I think the quick answer is, uh, is in order... Uh, for God to answer something like that, it's predicated on a promise. So God is saying, when I, Jesus is saying, when you have, uh, when I've made a promise, have faith in it and I will do it. But then the question is, when it comes to the prosperity gospel, has God promised you health, wealth, happiness in the way that you mean? And the answer would be no. Yeah, I would agree with that. That would be the first place I would go. The second place I would go is just, uh, and again, remember, I, I'm, when, when I'm having conversations with people like this, I'm trying to avoid the, endless roundabouts of theological speculation and, oh, well, that's just what your version of the text says, or that's not the way I read it. It's so fruitless. I just like to ask kind of Socratic, Socratically questions that might lead them to doubt their perspective. So another question that I would ask in that scenario is, uh, after this, did you ever see any disciples pick up a mountain and have it cast into the sea? You know? No. Has that ever happened in the history of the church or anything even resembling that? No. So, so what does Jesus mean there? What is that a symbol of? And I just kind of leave it there and let them explore further. I think there's a couple of, so yeah, you'll ping pong the mess out of this with people who will quote their verses. I think two things is one, Jesus is emphasizing not so much the size of their faith, but the object of their faith. And we are to put our faith not in our energy or mental stress, but in a big God who can do the impossible. I think the other thing, though, I think there is some tension in Scripture, but I think if you have some places in your mind about uh, there are certainly passages in Scripture that say God's going to do what he's going to do because he's decreed it to happen. And we also know in Scripture there's, there's God's revealed will. He's told us what he wants us to pray for, and we're not going to receive it if we don't pray. You know, you do not receive because you do not ask. But another text I go to, even with that Mark one, is Mark, um, 1 John 5, let Scripture interpret Scripture, Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And I think a, uh, one illustration I used just from history, um, Jim Elliott went on to the mission field. And I don't know if, if Elizabeth and he were just dating at this time or if it was one of their on and off stages before they got married. But one of the things she says in one of her books is that she prayed for Jim's safety. And she says in the journal, God answered that prayer. Well, if you know anything about Jim Elliott, he was martyred. How could she say God answered that prayer? And she said this, God kept his faith, but did not save his life. He finished well, and the Lord took him home. And so God answers prayer, but sometimes they're not exactly the way we're anticipating him. And he does it in the way that it's his will, it's what's best. And then there is some mystery. I'm not going to sit here and, as a robust Calvinist that believes in the sovereignty of God. There are passages of Scripture that say God's going to do what he's going to do. And then there are passages that say, ask, seek, knock, and pray, and keep seeking until the Lord reveals an answer. And I, so I think in the midst of all that, you just have to keep walking through passages of Scripture uh, and asking people, you know, the mountain, the hyperbole. You know, is Jesus yeah. saying take up the Rocky Mountains and throw them in your F-150? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> right. Uh, it's interesting that you quoted that verse from 1 John. That actually used to be my go-to verse. And then I found myself constantly, uh, it just opened up another can of worms. They would say, but it's God's will for me to be healthy. Like, <laughs> and they, then they would say, like, what father would want their child to be sick? What father mm -hmm. would want? So, of course, it's God's will for me. So, it's just so hard to have these conversations. I think the difference between Blake and I is, like, Blake's probably more used to having these conversations with, like, people who are, like, already on the same page about this, where, like, I've had these conversations ad nauseum with people who are deep in the prosperity gospel, and it, it just, you just have to be a little bit more presuppositional in your approach. Yeah. Mindy? Um, your personal testimony. Are yeah. you going to give that tomorrow? I was not planning on it. Oh. Take the floor. Uh, mm, okay. Uh, <laughs> read Ephesians 2. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dead in sin, alive in Christ. There you go. So I grew up in a family of drug addicts and alcoholics. And uh, my mom abused me pretty severely from the earliest uh, memories that I have until I was old enough to run away and escape it. Um, I was incarcerated for the first time at 14. I spent between the ages of 14 and 18 through various institutions, halfway houses, rehab facilities, mental hospitals, boot camps, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, when I was 17, um, I, uh, well, I'll fast forward. When I was 18, I ended up robbing a guy, and I was supposed to go to prison for 20 years. I got caught, and I went to this place that was like a Christian halfway house, like a last chance opportunity, so I didn't have to spend decades in prison, and it was a Christian organization, and uh, and we would wake up every morning and do Bible studies, and we'd go to church three nights a week, and it was so terrible. I couldn't stand any of it. Just like, you know, rusty spoon, get me out of here, right in my eye. And uh, one night, I, had, I got into some trouble at the house. I ran away. And while I was walking down the middle of the road in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, with nowhere to go and no one to love me, I just kind of came to the end of myself, and I just collapsed. And I probably heard the gospel, who knows how many times between now and then, but the circumstances at that point converged in such a way uh, as to lead me to just, you know, Jonah levels of brokenness. You know, don't care if I live or die. 
And it was very anticlimactic. Like, you remember those Lifetime movies, you know, like uh, the rain's coming down and I'm looking up at the heavens and I cry out to God, you know, God, are you there? Are you real? If you're there, I need you to do something. I can't keep doing this anymore. And nothing happened. It was very anticlimactic. And uh, I got up and I walked back to the halfway house and I asked if they would let me stay there for the night. And they said, yes, in the morning I would go to prison. They were going to have the sheriff come pick me up. And I went to bed not caring if I lived or died. And then I woke up the next morning and I was a Christian. The only thing I knew was that Jesus had saved me, that I was a sinner that had been redeemed, and everything about my life changed immediately. I went from only caring about drugs and sex and power to only caring about Jesus. I was walking around trying to evangelize anyone and anyone, anyone and everyone who would listen to me. I literally had plans to go on top of a local fast food place and preach the gospel at people walking in and out. That got shut down, thankfully. But uh, yeah, my, my whole life changed when I was 18 and I'm 34 now. Yeah. I gave you guys the super condensed version of that. And if you want it, there's an article on the Gospel Coalition from about eight years, seven years ago, the gospel that almost killed me. Longer than that even, yeah. So it just talks about how his, his early days, I guess, was caught up a little bit in this Yes, how this kind of comes together is I just, I was a drug dealer when I got saved, and I didn't know anything about the church. I hadn't grown up in the faith. And uh, the first guy to be kind to me after I became a Christian, he taught me the prosperity gospel. I didn't know any better. I was like, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. Just tell me what to do. And he was like, well, you just got to believe. And I was like, okay. And then, yeah, and then you can read about the rest of it there, how I came out of that. Say one more question if anyone has it. Ooh, it better be a good one. Kim. The prosperity gospel, they're told um, if they believe, then all these good things happen. What happens when those good things don't happen? That's a good question. Yeah, so there's a, so I know what happened for me. Uh, I just began to doubt, right? But here's the thing about the prosperity gospel. It's, it's a cult, okay? And if you, go, if you go through and you look at, like, all the significant traits of a cult, you see all of that in the prosperity gospel. Hyper-charismatic leaders, a sense of trying to control the lives of its members. But then there's like this negative reinforcement wherein if there's ever an issue with what you're being indoctrinated with and how it's not fleshing itself out in real life, uh, the problem is with you, you see. You, you're, not pra- you, you're, not, you're not, as a practitioner, you're not doing it right. And if you could just do it right, well, then, of course, you would see the fruit. And don't, it, it worked for him. And why isn't it working for you? Ah, well, it must be something you're doing wrong. So in the prosperity gospel, there's usually a couple things that they point to. Uh, you have sin that is in your life that you haven't dealt with. Maybe it's rooted deep down in a dark black cavern of your heart. And if you just root that out and fix it, then maybe things will get better. Uh, also, just could be a lack of faith. And that can be evidenced in something like if you get the flu and you say, oh, I don't feel well. Boom. There it is. See, I knew you didn't believe. What you should have said was, I feel great and nothing's wrong with me because I'm a child of God. And uh, so how do you respond when things don't work out? Well, most of the people respond in their hearts with doubt, with fear, with anxiety, with extreme distress. Uh, How they react outwardly is often very different because of the way that the cult reinforces uh, the mechanism in place. So, I mean, I've seen people be like absolutely shamed, like, you get diagnosed with cancer, 
you go to the doctor, the doctor says, we need to get you started on, you know, chemo immediately. They go back, they tell their pastor, their pastor shames them, and they, and they say, okay, well, I'm going to have faith, and, and then they die. I, that's actually a story that I, I know that happened, so, yeah, it's very tragic. Sean, if uh, anyone wanted to connect with you and, you know, keep in touch periodically, even if you're busy or whatnot, maybe just connect with you on the internet or learn more about other things you're doing with your ministry. Sure. How could they do that? Yeah, so I don't really do social media, so nothing to tell you there. Um, uh, Do the Defendant Confirm podcast. If you watch the movie, Russell Berger in there, he came, he was an elder at our church his wife is still very ill. He can't be with us now. He's taking care of her. He's uh, helping another church in the area. But he and I do an apologetics podcast that's on the American Gospel TV app. It's also on YouTube and on Facebook if you want to look up Defend and Confirm podcast. Uh, but I think the Lord has been using that uh, pretty significantly, and you might find something useful there. Other than that, uh, if you just want to hang out, come to Decatur, and we'll go get some barbecue. There you go. Well, I'm going to close this in prayer. Before we do, let's give uh, Sean a hand for being here today. I'm going to close this in prayer. If you want to hang out and linger for a while, you can. Otherwise, Lord, we'll see you tomorrow. Uh, Father, we thank you that you were speaking to us through Sean as an instrument in your hand to remind us again of the dangers of believing things that the atonement never promised necessarily in this life. Alluding to Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 2, showing us how to apply scripture by examining what all of your word says. Lord, I do pray that we would continue to be humble and teachable and prayerful as we approach your word, uh, that we would always be suspicious of our instincts before we ever move your word out of our life. Lord, I pray that we would renew our mind and renew our affections with your word. Lord, I also pray, as Sean alluded to Matthew 18, that we would not be uh, watching and getting all our theology at our computers or in the living room but in the context of the local church. Lord, I do pray that we would be members who watch over one another to encourage each other, hold each other accountable, ask each other what we're reading, what we're studying to help us be more faithful uh, to your word. Uh, Lord, I also pray if we have any family members or friends that are caught up in different manifestations of this, Lord, help us gently uh, but courageously enter into their life and walk alongside them with the wisdom that Sean's given us. Uh, Lord, I also pray for our church, that you would protect our church uh, from falling prey to this this heresy and its different manifestations. Uh, Lord, I also pray we would be patient with one another. We're all at different places in our own uh, walks as as Christians. And so I pray that we would forbear and be gentle and understanding. And Lord, we pray for Sean, that you would protect him, preserve him, but cause him to be a bold witness for you, uh, even if he faces persecution along the way. And we pray you would bless uh, with new converts and mature disciples there at 6th Avenue Community Church. And I pray that we at Chaffee Crossing can be an encouragement to them in some way. In Jesus' name, amen.